A huge part of this is pain and suffering that he wishes would come to an end. Now remember, this is a man who continually sacrificed for his children because he was afraid that his children were not walking with God. This is a man who has a concern for people's souls. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Word of God, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And thank you, Lord, that you are good and holy and just and true, and apart from you there is no good, nothing holy, nothing true. Dear Lord, you take men who are sinful and you impart impart within them saving grace, saving faith. You sanctify them, you set them apart. And like Moses who fled from Egypt into the land of Midian, married a a Midianite woman whose father was a priest of Midian, And on the night that you sent him back to Egypt, or on the way, you sought to kill him. And there was an awareness with Zipporah that he was a man of blood and she had to circumcise her son. Maybe she was against it. It's not perfectly clear. But you sought to kill Moses. Moses had to be obedient. You call all of us who are called by your name, who are your people, who are sent to do your work in the world. You call us to be obedient. Lord, it's outside of our ability unless we walk by faith and we trust that you work within us to do good within us. Lord, make the lessons of your goodness and your holiness and your salvation and your sanctification and your justification clear as we look today at the, your word, and particularly at the person of Job. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 85, Job, the Unseen Contest. Familiar book, Job. Much has been said about it. Certainly, people look at Job as the most suffering person in history. Um, You can come at Job from many different angles. Uh, What I want to do is I want to read through chapters 1 and 2 and get a feel for the story itself before we get into the biggest part, which is the dialogue between Job and his friends. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 7,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house 
of each one on his day, and they would send word and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the day of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send word to them and consecrate them, getting up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job did so continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God, let me break and stop for a second here. According to God's word, the man Job was blameless. Blameless by God, blameless by other men. I'm not sure, it doesn't really say. It says upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then it's going to come out a little bit more about what God thinks of Job when he speaks to the devil. But so far as the text is concerned right here, the statement is just made that Job was a man who was blameless. You know, the elders, according to 1 Timothy, are to be blameless. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without sin and of any kind. It just means a person that you can't just readily point the finger and say this, this, that, the other thing is wrong and be right about it. It's a man who's walking blameless before people at the very least, upright and fearing God. Then we continue, and it says, of course, it talked about his wealth. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I think it's safe to say that because Satan is coming among them, the sons of God are fallen angels. Were there good angels there as well? Can't say. All it says is, Sons of God. And sons of God are referred to as angels. All creatures are made in God's image. And from that standpoint, as sons of God. All mankind is made in God's image. Let us go down and make man in our image. Everything has the image of God impressed upon it. But now we're talking about living beings that have choice, not like animals or inanimate objects. And so of them, they are referred to as sons of God. The Lord said to Satan, he starts the discussion, from where did you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. That's a clear statement. He's one of a kind. A blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. This is God's statement about Job. Then Satan answered the Lord, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? He doesn't say that Job is not what God said him to be. He just merely says that does Job fear God for nothing, admitting that he's a man who fears God. Have you not made a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? which intimates that without that fence, it might not be the same. And then Satan says to him, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So there's a fence around him, nothing can touch him, and God is actually blessing him so that with much increase. But reach out with your hand now and touch all that he has. He will certainly curse you to your face. So man is incapable in Satan's opinion, of blessing God in the face of struggle, of suffering, of pain, of conflict. God 
is only blessed by men because when God does good things. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that is in, is in your power, he has is in your power. Only do not reach out and put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Then it goes into the details of what Satan does. And Satan basically massacres all his servants, kills all his children. He lays low the house when they were eating in it. And they're all dead and all his servants are killed. And, and your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine. They're all his brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. Then Job got up. And here's the response of Job to all this calamity, which is tremendous. Then Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here's this statement by God in this holy word. Despite all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So, very clearly in chapter 1, there's a contest in heaven, which later on as we read this conflict between Job and his friends, uh, nothing is said of this conflict. None, none is, said, is said of this contest between God, who's being accused by Satan, that his people will only bless him when they're blessed, for no other reason, no goodness in God, not his character, not his person, not who he is. This is what's on display here. An accusation by the adversary, which is exactly what Satan means, that name of the devil. It means adversary. He's, he's an accuser of the brethren, we're told in another place. And as, an, as such, he accuses God through God's people. But despite all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So there we have the picture from chapter 1. And then there's another day that happens. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, again, God is the first one to speak in these cases. God has a plan God's not being taken by surprise. God is not responding to Satan's accusations. God gives the reason. God mentioned the truth, knowing Satan's character. Satan is going to be negative towards God. He hates God. He wants to be in control of everything. Where have you come from? Same display. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds firm to his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So now we're going a little deeper in what, what the issue is, what's being said here what God believes about, about uh, Job. He's stating that nothing's changed. You know, you incited me for no reason. I mean, Job's not doing anything bad. You know, this isn't about chastisement. This isn't about hurting Job because he's doing something wrong. This isn't about God bringing wrath upon a man. 
This is about a man who's blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil. Not sinless. He's a man who turns away from evil. He, he makes a covenant with his eyes that he will look on only what's right and he won't be immoral. He won't be one who's filled with pride. He won't be covetous. All of these things, this, the sins of the eyes, Job's made a covenant with that. He's a righteous man. Is it by the power of God? Undoubtedly, and that comes out in this story. Um, but there's this conflict between God and Satan. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, reach out with your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So in other words, the man wants to live. He's not going to curse you because he wants to live. I mean, again, just absolute accusations with no basis in reality. This is the devil. And men are sons of the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, Jesus told the religious leaders of his day. And so all men lie. He's a murderer from the beginning. People murder. We're made in the image of Satan because we bought into the lie in the garden that God was no good. And he's still at the same work of accusing God of being no good. Good for nothing. There's no reason to give praise to you, O God, because he doesn't call him God. However, reach out now and touch him in his bone and he's going to curse you. Okay. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Satan can go only as far as God allows. People will look at this and say, See, God can't touch people. That doesn't, this does not say that. It does not t say that Satan can't take a person's life. What this says is God, Satan can't take a person's life unless God permitted. God is sovereign over the universe, and that includes Satan and everything else, and everyone else, and he's in control of every particle of everything that exists. This is the meaning of, of sovereignty when referring to God. But God puts controls. People always want to read things in that are not there. It does not say that. God, Satan took the life of every one of Job's servants and all his children. But I never hear men, and I'm sure there's men that say it, but I don't hear men. some men jump in there and say, well, he couldn't take the servants' lives. No, they couldn't say that because he did. So if that's your belief, if that's what you've been told, if that's what you're following after, just kind of change it because that's just not accurate. So Satan goes out and he just covers uh, uh, Job with boils and he's suffering now in his skin. And then this statement comes in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold firmly your integrity? The first statement against Job has not come from his three friends but from his own wife. Curse God and die. But he said to her, You are speaking as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we actually accept good from God, but not accept adversity? Despite all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. And out of Job's mouth came no sin. I'm going to have to believe that there's no sin in Job at this point regarding all of this calamity. He speaks to his wife, what appears to be calm. He speaks to her with a certain respect, believe it or not, because he says you are speaking as one of the foolish women. 
which could indicate that she was not a foolish woman. Now remember, this is a woman, a woman who, as men and women go, the women are the more emotional. They have a tendency to speak from emotions. They have a tendency to be not quite as logical in speaking as men are, and men being less emotional. And there's good and there's bad on both of those sides. Men can be cold and callous, where women can be soft and nurturing and, and loving. Um, and here, this woman has not suffered anything less than Job, minus the boils. This woman has lost all the servants. This woman has lost all the livestock, all the livelihood. This woman has lost all her children that she bore in her own body. This is a woman who's who's not suffering any less, if not more, than Job is. And she speaks with reference to Job's responsibility as a man and head of the house. Why has this come on us? She doesn't know anything about the devil. She doesn't know or speak anything about conversations in heaven. She's oblivious to these things just as Job is and just as the friends will be. But she's in pain. And out of her pain, she sees the man who's responsible in her eyes for the wealth and for the good and the responsibility that he took there. And now she responds to him as the man who could be possibly be the one responsible, and she attacks his integrity in pain. The friends are not so. The friends who come to Job, as we're about to read from verse 11, are not in the pain of this wife. Now, when Job's three friends heard about all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. I mean, all his hair is shaved off, the boils, he's been scraping, he's red, and his, his, his skin is, is not what it was. His face is no what distorted from the grief alone, let alone the boils. And so they look at him from a distance and they begin to weep. And they raise their voices and weep. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now, at this point, we need to consider that these men have a bad end in the story by what God has to say. These men uh, are men who care for Job, not like the wife. They're not bound in marriage to this man. They're no doubt not feeling the effects personally of all the loss, and it comes out in what they have to say. So let's review just for a second. There's a dialogue in heaven not known on earth between God and Satan. God states his view of Job. Job is righteous, turning away from evil. No one like him in all the earth, by God's statement. Satan is the adversary, accuses Job about his motives, the protection provided by God. 
The, the protection indicates Job needed it because of Satan. Satan is never known or never mentioned by Job or his friends. Job loses his possessions and means of wealth. God is vindicated by Job's initial response. Job worships without question. Job bows to God's superior authority. Job does not blame God and does not sin. Furthermore, in chapter 2, Job's loss of his health. The pain of Job's wife is seen in her statements. Job refers to his wife speaking as a foolish woman, which indicates that she did not normally speak in this way. Job's wife's suffering, the same loss. The three friends appear. The fourth is not named. They do not speak until Job does. In chapter 3, Job speaks from his suffering, his grief, and his pain. And he starts, and there's 26 verses, and on average, there's about 26 verses in every chapter in this dialogue that goes back and forth between Job and his friends. Job starts it off by saying, in pain, starts it off by saying, may the day on which I was to be born perish, as well as the night which said, a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. <clears throat> May God above not care for it, nor light shine on it. May darkness and black gloom claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the black of the day terrify it. He wants an end to that day because he wishes he had never been born. Why is he coming across this way? What, what's the change to say? This is seven days later. What we don't see in this story is just what the men do not see prior to the story, and that's the dialogue in heaven. We don't see the ambushes by the devil on Job in his mind. We don't hear his words in his head. All of this is words just as in the dark. And as we approach the story, I think we need most definitely to approach the story from the point of spiritual warfare. The spiritual warfare that in the 20th and 21st century has gone dark, as Martin Luther said, in, uh, with the coming of the 20th century, you know, Freud came in, psychology came in, all about us and who we are and how we think about ourselves and this great increase in knowledge, so to speak. And yet spiritual warfare and prayer in the churches has gone out. Churches don't pray like they used to. Churches don't recognize the battle we're in. I mean, it's said about Martin Luther that he actually threw his inkwell across the wall, broke and splattered ink all over the wall in in a fit as he was dealing with the devil. You know, just this week I heard a man speaking, godly man, man given to ministry, talking about he never spends time with God. (laughs) I mean, literally, that's what he said. He never spends time with God. How can a child of God deal with what he has to deal with when his mind is clueless as to spiritual warfare? You know what the, the Old Testament saints had? And this man probably is living sometime between the flood and Abraham, most likely, and especially in the span of his life, which he had to live probably at least 200 years. 
And so there in prior to the law, prior to even Abraham, prior to Moses and all of that, this is where we find this man, Job. He, he, he does not have any clue of what we have in the New Testament. This is a man, we don't know what's been passed on by word of mouth. There's elements that have been given, sacrifice, even between Cain and Abel, understanding. I'm not saying he's completely in the dark. I'm not saying he doesn't know God, is, in, is, is not in fellowship with God. And with that comes knowledge, comes wisdom and understanding. What I'm saying is according to as the Bible is written, with a wealth of knowledge within those 66 books. This is not given to Job. Not as we have it, in doctrinal form as well. And specifically, spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 and all through the New Testament. And the demons that come on the scene in the Gospels. All of that, and even in the book of Acts. All of that, he is clueless to all of it. And so now he's being spoken to by one he doesn't even recognize, probably able to, he's not able to di- di- differentiate between his own words, his own thoughts, the words and thoughts of God, and the words of the devil. He's left to himself, at best God speaking to him, and nothing else. And now after seven days, he cries out in pain. Part of this is, a huge part of this is pain and suffering that he wishes would come to an end. Now remember, this is a man who continually sacrificed for his children because he was afraid that his children were not walking with God. This is a man who has a concern for people's souls. This is not a man who wants children in his own image to make himself look good, which is so often the times except in our generation is deteriorated to the point that people don't even care about their kids anymore. Not everyone. Those who buying into the American culture of the 21st century, so much damage has been done. But in, in prior days, men would take pride in who their sons became, and people still take that pride today. And let me say that that isn't happening. But this is a man who, rather than taking pride in his sons, which... I'm sure he did to some degree. But that's not what the text talks about. The text talks about Job's concern for his son's souls with an eternal perspective, standing before Almighty God. This is a man in relationship to God. In response to Job and this first chapter 3, 26 verses of pain, Eliphaz shows up, and Eliphaz robs Job of innocence, is what happens in this chapter. Quote, verse 2, If anyone ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have taught many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the stumbling to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees, But now it comes to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are horrified. There is no sense in these words of Eliphaz of any sensitivity, any concern, any love, any kindness whatsoever. This is a man who has been barraged with pain. 
So after seven days of contemplation of pain, Eliphaz gave him seven days leniency and then throws grenades at this man. Now, what would he expect to come back? The The man is an insensitive moron, really. Eliphaz, the name means God is fine gold, I believe. These names are very hard, very ancient to understand, but the best that I I could come up with was Eliphaz, God is fine gold or a god of gold, a god of gold. And in Eliphaz's talk, speeches that he throws at Job, you find that this man has things and money on his mind. And that blessing is always wrapped around with a man's abundance of things. Verse 1 says, Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? This is chapter 5. And to which of the holy ones will you turn? Your irritation kills the fool, and jealousy brings death to the simple. These are just painful words. Job says his friends are no help in chapter 6. Oh, if only my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my disaster, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. For that reason, my words have been rash. Now, in response to Eliphaz, Job says that his words have been rash. He's he's telling them, I'm talking out of my pain here. He goes on in verse 7. And, and says that his life seems futile. Verse 1, is a person not forced to labor on earth? And are his days not like the days of a hired worker? As a slave pants for the shade, as a hired worker who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted, allotted worthless months, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. Then I lie down and I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues and I'm continually tossing until dawn. I mean, regardless of what may take place in a man's life, even with wealth, and wealth doesn't bring happiness. So so Job is rich. His real riches was in his faith with God, in his blameless state before God, in his ability to worship God in the midst of pain. And so attached, though, to life is always sorrow, is always pain, There's always worry. He's always worried about his kids. No doubt, always worried about his wife, his servants, his livestock. I mean, speaking like this. Then Bildad shows up. Another grand instrument of insensitivity. Bildad, verse 22. 22 verses, again, in this chapter. means son of contention, probably. Son of contention. Verse 2. How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Here's the sense of how these men are speaking. These men are speaking as though God is reacting to Job. That Job has done all these horrible things and that's why all this evil is coming on Job. Again, they have no clue about Satan. No clue about this contest for God's character. No clue about what God thinks of Job, that he's the best on the planet. Totally clueless. So as these words come out, it's the words of foolish men. Chapter 9, Job says there is no arbitrator between God and mankind. So by verse chapter 9, the real truth of what 
Job needs is made clear by Job himself. This is Job. This is a godly man. This is a blameless man who turns away from evil in God's view. Then Job responded in truth, I know that this is so. But how can a person be in the right with God? So there's condemning him. And Job is saying, so how how do you get to be in right with God? Why is he saying this? Who commands the sun to shine and puts a seal on the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? He's talking from the greatness of God. This is a this is a man speaking worshipfully here. With all this pain going on, he's still speaking in worshipful terms. But the, and then show, Job shifts his attention in verse 20. Though I am righteous, he's standing to, uh, to his righteousness. That's what he knows himself to be, and he actually happens to be accurate according to God. My mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I reject my life. Job is partially responding to these men who are murderous with their indictments. And Job's a sinner like everybody else, and a sinner understands he's a sinful person. And so he's got to agree. And now in light of the person that God is, I mean, where's Job to go? How does he turn? How does he get away from this? Job continues in despair of a moderator. Verse 32. For he is not a man, speaking of God, as I am, that I may answer him. He has no answer for God at this point. That we may go to court together. His friends haven't gotten him to the point. They're going to push him to a point. But right now, in the beginning, he's not there. And he says in verse 33, "There, there is no arbitrator between us. That's between me and God, who can place his hand upon us both. This is... This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the the God-man who is to come. There is none at this point. There's no Jesus at at this point. He continues in verse 34, Let him remove his rod from me, and let not the dread of him terrify me. There's no moderator. There's no one to do this for me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. Job can't moderate for himself, and he understands that. In chapter 10, Job despairs of God's dealings. These men are pushing him so. So far in chapter 11, rebukes Job. Zophar departing is what his name means. Naaman, pleasant land. And it also can mean chirper. So Zophar departs, if you put these words together, from the pleasant land, which is Naamah, for he's a Naamathite, uh, departing the pleasant land to what? To chirp, you know, uh, at, at this poor man Job who's suffering miserably. And instead of being a comforter to him, he was only a comforter when his mouth was shut. When his mouth is open, he's just he's a horrible person. Verse 2, shall, I, shall a multitude of words go unanswered? And a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men? And shall you scoff and none rebuke? I mean, he's just like, I can't hold it in anymore. I've got to rebuke you. For you have said, my teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak. And, and now he's, now, now that's Zophar speaking for God now. My teaching is pure, and I'm innocent in your eyes. 
But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show that you that show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? So he's bringing in this big God to condemn Job because Job doesn't know everything. So where is, where is he really being condemned so far? from Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, what are they bringing that's tangible? So far, they got nothing, which is why Elihu shows up. Got nothing, guys. You got nothing. Chapter 12, Job chides his accusers. He speaks of, of God's power equally. Job says the, <clears throat> his friends' proverbs are ashes in chapter 13. Verses 1 through 12, Job is sure he will be vindicated, 13 through 23. And then in, in chapter 14, Job speaks of the finality of death. There's, these are just responses against accusations. He knows he's a sinful man. He's painfully aware of this. But he's defending himself. He's thrown into the arena. What happens when a man throws a punch? You defend yourself. It's no different with words. When you're under attack... The first instinct is to throw up your hands to defend yourself. He's doing that with words here. Chapter 15, Eliphaz says, says Job presumes much. What Eliphaz has seen of life is what he goes on to say. Now he's speaking from his own experience of life. Verse 29, he will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure, and his grain will not bend down to the ground He's talking about truly righteous men, righteous men as if Job is not. In chapter 16, Job says, friends, his friends are miserable comforters. Verses 1 to 5, and then in 16 to 22, Job says, God shattered him. He says, God shattered him. And then in chapter 17, Job says, he has become a proverb. And the proverb, my spirit is broken, my days are, are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. I mean, this is how he stands before people. This is 16 verses. I mean, three, two chapters to Eliphaz's one in defense of himself. Bill, Bildad speaks of the wicked in chapter 18. I suppose he's throwing that blame on, on Job. Then comes chapter 19. This is a pivotal chapter. Pivotal in the sense that we get a, a really better look at Job in this chapter than we've had before. We, we know about him, but now he's speaking. So in chapter 19, uh, we read these words. Then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you've insulted me. You've not, uh, you are not ashamed to wrong me, even if I have truth truly done wrong my error stays with me if indeed you exalt yourself against me and prove my disgrace to me know then that god has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net i mean he's saying some things here which is a man who's under a barrage of punches he's taking these strikes he has integrity and yet he's getting accused you know, where do you go with that? You know, there's always things that come out of our mouth when we're in such a situation. I say always, but often, 
which is just not good. Job complaints are not just against his three antagonists. I'm going to move down to verse 13. and he, he has removed my brothers far from me, he says. And my acquaintances have completely turned away from me. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my servant women consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servants, but he does not answer. I, I have to implore his favor with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I'm loathsome to my own brothers. Now remember here, too, that <clears throat> Satan goes, and then there's another day, and we don't know the time span in there. And so even between the first chapter and the second chapter, there can be a span, and between chapter 2 and chapter 3, a span before these men show up. But now we see this picture of it's not just the friends, but it's just being alienated by everybody, even his wife. And we understand the wife, and I've talked about that. But the heart of Job is, is really revealed beginning in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were recorded in a book. Obviously, he's not talking about the bad words coming out of his mouth, even when he has to say he's sorry about what's coming out of his mouth. He's talking about in the past. He's talking about who he is. He's talking about his faith in God. Not necessarily sinless perfection, but just how God has lived, worked in his life and the worship he has for him. Verse 24, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Yet as for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. You want to talk about faith? There it is. This is really Old Testament saint, really old. Whom I on my part shall behold for myself. He's going to see his Redeemer. And whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may no, there is judgment. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, regardless of who I am, regardless of what I've done, regardless of the fact that I'm not a perfect man, I have a Redeemer. And on the last day, that Redeemer is going to stand with me. Why? Because he's a Redeemer. A Redeemer is one who buys back. That's what Christ did on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. <laughs> Job at this point, is speaking from deep down within his heart. He's speaking as a spiritual man speaks as of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. That the things of God belong to those whom God gives them to a man. So after chapter 19, chapter 20, Zophars says the rejoicing of the wicked is short. He did just continue like he didn't say a word. 21, Job says God will deal with the wicked. And he must have these friends in view now. Chapter 22, Eliphaz accuses and exhorts Job. 
You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrify you. This man, who's a man of gold, you know, is accusing Job for not giving enough to the poor. But we have no idea that that's true, or there's any truth in it at all. Uh, but it's accusations being made. And when, Elif, um, when Elihu shows up, he's, he's going to say that they had no indictments to stick. In chapter, 20, in chapter 23, Job says he longs for God. In chapter 24, God, Job says God seems to ignore wrongs. He's feeling so wronged right now. Chapter 25, Bildad says mankind is inferior. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, Dominion and awe belong to him who makes peace in his heights. Is there any number of his, to his troops? And upon whom does his light <clears throat> not rise? How then can mankind be righteous with God? Or how can anyone who is born of a woman be pure? He's, he's indicting Job. You're not pure. If even the moon has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and that son of man, that worm. And so these, as the accusations are coming, and the punches are being thrown, punches with words, Job just continues to defend himself. So what happens? In you know, chapter 25, Bildad has six verses. This is a turning point. You know, the average, I tell you, is about 26 verses, ranging from the 20-ish to 30. And, and this the length, and whether these conversations are shortened or what, it doesn't matter. As far as the text is, text is concerned, this is the way it breaks down. This is what God wants us to know. This bantering back and forth, this this cutting of into one another, cutting especially into Job, so that at the end of verse 6 in chapter 25, Job just cuts him off. You're done. I don't want to hear you anymore. Which in verse 32, when Job's done speaking and it's about to go to Elihu, uh, that's exactly what we read. Job is done. He's righteous in his own eyes. There's no talking to the man anymore. In, in chapter 26, Job re rebukes Bildad. In 27, Job affirms his own righteousness, <clears throat> and he talks about the state of the godless. In chapter 28, Job tells of earth's treasures and the, the search for wisdom, how hard it is. In chapter 29, Job's past was glorious. In 30, Job's present state is humiliating. He's bouncing back and forth from who he was to who he is, who he was to who he is. And all of it is different defense techniques against three men who want to see him eliminated, annihilated. Who knows? Probably because they're just envious of him. And this is a wealthy man. Men covet what you have and they become jealous. In chapter 31, Job asserts his integrity and the words of Job are ended. I mean, he says it. The words of Job are ended. I'm done. I'm through. I'm finished. Next time, we're going to go into Elihu and the, the end, the conclusion of the story. This time, we're ending with this picture of men who want to crucify other men who are godly. At the time in which Job lived, according to God's words, he was the most righteous. Now, whatever that looks like, before God, it doesn't matter. This is the context that's put in. No one can talk to Job in an accusatory way without it having come back to on him tenfold. But that's not what happens here. We have three men so far 
who accused Job to annihilate him with accusations when Job is the righteous one. Now, what happens in churches today? What's been happening in churches for the last 500 years? We're not even going to talk about before the Reformation and what state the church was in prior to that and the wars that went on between popes and kings. Without going into that, you know, the gospel has been given and the church has gone to war. Ever since the church split into two, and you had Catholicism and you had Protestantism, those two, Protestantism has fractured again and again and again and again. And there's been splits and there's been disagreements and there's been arguments and this kind of dialogue going on. Who's accusing who of what and who's coming up short and this and that and the other thing. All of this is so present for the last 500 years plus. 500 years of arguments, of disputes, and the question remains, who's aware of the dialogue going on between God and the devil? Who is on their knees praying so that God can hear our cry and give us relief? The relief from our own accusation and our own divisions. And there's been godly praying men. Just read E.M. Bounds, the works of E.M. Bounds, where he talks about Godly men and how they prayed. And who spent two and four and six and eight hours a day in prayer. It's not that history is devoid of these men. It's just that they have been decreasing in numbers as time has gone on until the 20th and 21st centuries until we're praying, until praying is almost at nil. At least in the East, at least in the West. I can't speak for men who are under persecution, whose lives are in danger every day. Other countries... I hear different stories about what goes on. Some countries, it's much like the West. and In other countries, severe persecution and men are, men, are, men are more of prayer. But in general, across the board in, in the West, prayer is not what it could be and what it should be. And we all need to take stock of our lives and to be more men of prayer. Humble men, men who God can look at and speak of us as he did Job. We have a Redeemer. We not only know he, he, he lives, we know Him. We're meant to know Him. We're meant to know the Jesus of the cross. So let us take the time to think about this book of Job and what conflicts look like between godly people and bring it to a place where it, it need not be this way. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this word that explains in in great detail, how you view your people and how you view those who come against them. Lord, we haven't said much about the outcome of the three friends. Your word has some to say at the very end. We'll take a hard look at that next time. Lord, give us uh, the thoughts, the words, the passion for the church and for unity, and for love among the brethren. Lord, that we would be of one mind, that we would be one of spirit, that we would bridge the gap in all of these divisions through prayer and through revival in the church. Open the door for revival on earth. We need it desperately. We need it in this hour. We need it in the West. We need it in the world. Open our hearts, Lord, that we might be humble, prayerful people.
I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.